so well done. You made it to October break. If you've got a pair, if you're a parent with school-age kids, God, that feels pretty good, doesn't it? To have got to this point in the year without any more lockdowns or anything like that. I think like so many churches coming out of lockdown, we've just kept it very simple over these last couple of months. And we've just focused on regathering Sunday mornings and small groups. And I hope you're getting those rhythms back into your life again because they're so important. And it's just exciting to hear, as Luke's saying, we've got things like Alpha and Parenting for Faith and Explore Membership, these sorts of things beginning to happen again. And uh, the one thing we've never been able to do for the last 18 months is to really plan too far ahead. But just a couple of weeks ago, we, we sat with a room full of people, some leaders across Kings, and we, uh, we talked about Christmas and what, what we're going to do to try and help more people connect with Jesus over this December time. So we'll share more about that in some weeks to come. And then into the new year, we're going to be uh, talking about our vision as a church and moving into a week of prayer. So it's exciting, isn't it? There's a plan. God has a plan for us and he has a plan for you. So uh, we're in Nehemiah chapter 3. Um, so if you've got a Bible, you can, uh, you can look there. Um, do you know the story of Nehemiah? Um, it, so if you're not really into history, it's 444 BC, but it reflects a much, much more important story in the Bible. And you see, Nehemiah was somebody who was born in a palace, raised in a palace, he worked in a palace, he had a very comfortable life, he was a very fulfilled person. But he left the comfort of his palace to go and fix something that was broken, a wall in Jerusalem. And the biggest story that reflects, of course, in the Bible is that Jesus left eternal glory where he was comfortable, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, worshipped for all eternity, and he left the comfort of that to go and fix something that was broken, to fix us, you, me, the human race, for he so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him should not perish. So as we read books like Nehemiah, it's with this greater story in mind that God is the God who wants to come and mend what is broken. And like Nehemiah, who created a community of builders to, to, to help fix what was broken, Jesus is building his church. And he's building us into a community alongside many other great churches in our city and our land to put wrongs to right and to fix those things which are broken and to form his community. So as we read these verses today in just a moment, let me start by saying this, that if you're feeling broken and bruised today, then God's here to mend you and to fix you. And if you're feeling a bit disconnected on the edge and perhaps a bit cynical about church, you don't have to listen to too many podcasts these days to make you feel that way. Then he's here to give you, as Jen prophesied, to give you his heart for the church. I was at a wedding two or three weeks ago. Valderio and Moana got married right here. They're both from Brazil, but they'd been separated for months. She came straight from the airport quarantine hotel to this building and got married because Valderio would not wait a moment longer. Do you know that's how Jesus feels about his church? You think, wow, he wants to give you that heart today. And if you're feeling restless or purposeless as you're coming out of this COVID season, then he's here to recommission you and invite you to join his team. So these people, these builders who said, yes, we're going to pick up their story in chapter 3. Let's read together. It'll appear on the screen as well. And uh, we'll read uh, about 20 verses. 
Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zachar, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish, gate, the fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanar. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshullam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshabzabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Banna, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. The Jeshana gate was repaired by Joida, son of Pasia, and Meshullam, son of Basudiyeh. They laid its beams and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. Next to them, repairs were made by men from Gibeon and Mizpah, Malaysia and Gibeon and Jodan of Maraneth, places under the authority of the governor of the trans-Euphrates. Uzziel, son of Harhiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section, and Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Raphael, son of Hur, ruler of a half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. Adjoining this, Jediah, son of Haramath, made repairs opposite his house. And Hattush, son of Hushabneer, made repairs next to him. Malkjah, son of Harim, and Hashab, son of Pahab Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Shalom, son of Halohesh, ruler of a half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. I think his sons were playing FIFA. Next to him, so verse 20, just to finish off. Next to him, Barak, son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section from the angle at the entrance of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. Next to him, Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, repaired another section from the entrance of Eliashib's house to the end of it. So there you go. That's team Nehemiah. That's the people who built these walls around Jerusalem led by him. And today, we want to talk about Team Jesus, okay, from these verses. Who's the team that Jesus is building and putting together for his purposes right now? And we're going to do that by looking at these people whose renown and contribution outlasts their relatively obscure names and short earthly lives. So you don't have to look very far in the list to to see who's in the crowd. There's men and women. There's those who are in full-time paid ministry, and those who are not. There's different ages and stages. There's different people from different towns and villages and places. There's people with different trades. There's goldsmiths and perfumers. There's people with no skills at all. And there's people who are representative of all of society, from those who are aristocrats and half-rulers of districts, and those who had no responsibilities at all. Isn't that amazing? The diversity of that crowd. Yet this is the kind of church that Jesus is building in our day. It's a church filled with different sorts of people. If you come in today and you're feeling like, well, I don't feel like everybody else here. Well, good, I'm so glad you're here. Because we need you here in this room today and in this community. Yet, you know, sometimes when you read a a passage like this, you think, So what am I supposed to get out of it? It just feels like a jumble of names, am I right? Difficult names. I was expecting a round of applause for getting them all right, by the way. 
just, I, <laughs> but here's the, but when you see that, you're also looking for the commonality. You're looking, well, what's the thing that is actually keeping me going through this? And it's this phrase which you read 20 times. I don't know if you heard it as we were going through it. It says this, next to them, next to them, next to them, next to them, next to them. So you've got all these different people, a whole different crowd, but they're all working alongside one another. They're doing something together. And today, I just want us to look at three things about these people, the three things that they discovered together, the three things they had in common, so that we can be those sorts of people as well. And firstly, I want us to see that they understood the necessity of their situation. Secondly, they realized their identity. And thirdly, they pursued diversity in unity. So firstly, they saw the necessity. They understood the necessity of what was happening. It's not a task just for the paid professionals. They didn't see Eliashib, the high priest, with his wheelbarrow full of bricks and think, oh, I'm glad he's doing it. They thought, no, he's never going to do it by himself. He needs a whole army of helpers. And so they became those people. It's going to take everybody. Somebody once wrote a story entitled, Whose Job Is It Anyway? And it goes like this. This is a story about four people named everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. There was an important job to be done, and everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. Somebody got angry about that because it was everybody's job. Everybody thought anybody could do it, but nobody realized that everybody wouldn't do it. It ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have. The end. See, here's the point. When it comes to the kingdom of God, there's no spectators. It's all hands on deck. The church that Jesus is building is about everyone participating. If you look in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it tells you four things that early church committed themselves to. And it was the apostles' teaching, it was the breaking of bread, it was prayer, and it was this old-fashioned word called fellowship. You know, back in the sort of 60s and 70s, some churches rebranded themselves fellowship because churches had lost the sense of what it meant to be church because they'd become spectator sports. And this word fellowship, it means participation. That's how it's translated often in the New Testament. Sometimes it would be used to describe a fishing partnership, like between James and John in the Gospels. It was something where it really mattered if you were there. And that's the way the early church saw itself. Participants in something together. They were people who knew who was next to them and who they were next to. Who's God put you next to in your life and in this community? So that's the first thing. They understood the necessity of their involvement. Secondly, they, they embraced their new identity. One of the biggest struggles we have in our day and age is the struggle for identity. Everybody's pursuing this individualistic sense of, well, who am I? And we live in an era where traditional ways of ascertaining that, based on education, background, nationality, etc., are less present. So people feel like they have to try and figure out who they are exactly. And, you know, the snowflake, every snowflake's different, isn't it? But the whole point of snow is this. One snowflake by itself is meaningless. You'd never see it. You'd never notice it. It would never make a difference. 
When do you, when do you enjoy the snow? It's when it's, it's layered thick in millions and millions of snowflakes. It's the togetherness that brings the identity to the individual. We tend to answer the question individualistically, but the answer is discovered in unity. And what you find is when we read these verses, I don't know if you noticed that little crowd of people who didn't seem to want to do the work. Did you notice them? The nobles of Tokoa. I feel that would make a great name of a board game or something. <laughs> the nobles of Tokoa, it says this about them in verse 5. It says, their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. Isn't that interesting that they, they thought, well, we're waiting for a better opportunity here. See, we're nobles, we're not builders, so I'm glad that somebody's doing the building stuff, but to be honest, if it's a noble you're after, I'm your man, or I'm your woman. But, but you see, they missed out on the full purpose of God for their lives. If you were to look at the footnote in that, on that verse that they, they uh, didn't give themselves to the supervisors, it could also be translated, they, they didn't give themselves to the Lord. So this is what it looks like. For us to pursue God is to pursue God in community with the thing that he's doing right in front of us. The church of Jesus was built by unqualified fishermen because the religious leaders of the day could not be led by Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 26, it says about the people that God chooses. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. That's you and me. I mean, some of us here probably do have degrees, probably half of us. But you know, that isn't the basis not which town you're from, not what you're studying, not where do you live. Our identity surpasses all of that. What's our identity? It's that we are children of God, part of the family of God, brothers and sisters alongside one another. This is where we fit in the world, and that's what distinguishes us from the world. And it's because God has chosen us to be his people, not individuals who just shine individually, that prophecies like Isaiah 58, verse 12, are filled with meaning. It says, your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. See, your people, it's a plural thing. If you were to go across to the Old Testament and say, well, who are the big names of the Old Testament? You'd probably say, well, there was Moses, there was David, there was Abraham... Individuals in a generation who brought God's purpose into their generation, anointed by the Spirit. Do you know what changed in the New Covenant? Acts chapter 2. It says that very deliberately it's described as the Holy Spirit came down as fire. And then people were no doubt thinking, who is the fire going to fall on? Is it going to be Peter? Is it going to be James? Is it going to be John? And then this fire, it separates out into 120 little flames and it comes on all of them. See, the anointing of the Spirit. The purposes of God are no longer restricted to one 
or two people in a generation. It's, it's the gift to you as a follower and a believer in Jesus. His glory fills you. Here's the third thing. So we, we, we find our, our identity in uh, together. Here's the third thing. We don't just stick together in that, but within that togetherness, we, def- we find our individual part to play because God gives gifts to his church that are diverse. Every believer has a ministry of the Spirit, at least one, usually more. God's generous with his gifts, and he loves to pour his gifts into our lives. So here's the thing. You are way better at me than at least one thing. Now, you're probably sitting there thinking, I could name a few things. <laughs> but the truth is, God has made you gifted. He's given you gifts that are different to others in the room. And that's an exciting place to be. Because it means this, that you're not here by accident. It means that God has positioned you for purpose. It means that there are people in your life, in this church community, in your small group, in your world, that only your gifts can help and serve, and somebody else's won't. And he's put you next to them. In your neighborhood, in your university, in your workplace, in your school, in your home, on that Zoom call that you're doing this week, who's he positioning you next to? And for many of us, we we go through the gift lists of 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 and and Ephesians 4, and we think, well, I'm still not sure exactly what my gifts are. Does anybody here ever just wonder what their gifts are? Give me a wave if that's you. Yeah, I, I think most of us just spend decades of our life figuring that out, don't we? Here's the thing. Don't waste your life thinking about what your gifts are. That's good to get to grips with that. But I want you to point you to a really great example in the verses we read today of somebody who didn't really know their gifts, but they got stuck in anyway. Because it strikes me that life is full of people, three types of people. There's people who overextend themselves all the time. There's people who manage to keep their serving and their life within their God-given capacity. And then there's the third group of people who don't quite know what to do. And so they don't always get stuck in as much as they would like to. And you see those three groups in this story that we read today. You find Eliashib, the high priest, and his crew, they go off to the sheep gate to rebuild it, because that's an important thing to get rebuilt. And then you've got some other people, and it just says, well, they just built the bit outside their house, and they built the bit outside their house, and they built the bit outside their house. And Eliashib, the high priest, he must have thought, well, I hope somebody builds the bit outside my house, because I'm busy doing the sheep gate. And you know somebody did. And you read about them in verse 20. Two heroes called Barak and Meramoth. And it simply says this about them. They didn't have skills. They weren't half rulers. They weren't goldsmiths. It just says, Barak, son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section from the angle of the entrance of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. And Meramoth did the same thing. Do you love that? Here's somebody who says, I don't know what my gifts are, but I'm just going to do it really, really zealously and enthusiastically. 
If you don't know your gifts, just be enthusiastic and throw yourself behind somebody who needs some help in life. And God will quickly show you who you are and what your gifts are. Maybe find a young mum who perhaps needs a bit of help. Maybe support a leader, a small group leader, and say, hey, you've been just running hard this last year and a half. How could I help you? It seemed to be that leaders were cared for from within the community in Nehemiah's day, and I think that's such a great model in church life. I, and for Julie and I, we feel very well cared for in this community. Do you know, my small group leader actually came to me the other day, and I'd missed a few small groups, and, um, and they said, um, Dan, I just, just noticed you've missed a few small groups recently. Everything okay? And I said, oh, yeah, I've been really busy. Just had so many meetings, had to do Tuesday nights. And, and uh, unapologetically, they said, well, I just think you need to prioritize properly. <laughs> and, and, uh, and it was coming out of a place of care, because I think it's not good for you to not be in our small group community regularly. I thought, no, that's so right. How often do I tell other people that prioritize? And yet my small group leader was saying that to me out of care and love, which was really excellent. But hey, let's not just apply this inwardly because there's a world out there, isn't there? Isn't there? Yes. So um, who has God put you next to in your day-to-day life, in your week this week, in your jobs, workplaces, and homes? I, I, I was chatting this through with Julie, my wife, a bit earlier this week, and I was, we were just remembering her story. Do you know, she'd never met a Christian until she was age 18. She said, at least if she had, they'd never come clean, the fact that they were a Christian. Nobody had ever shared the gospel with her. She'd never been to church. She didn't even know that churches really had people who went to them. And she took a gap year and went across to India and worked as a volunteer in an orphanage. And she, what she didn't realize, it was, it was a Christian orphanage. It was a very, very Christian orphanage. And she found herself being read the Bible and having to lead prayers and do all sorts of things that she had never, ever done in her life before. But you know what? Through the testimony and witness of these children who really had nothing and some other volunteers and helpers who were helping those kids, but they saw it as their opportunity that they had that God had brought Julie into their lives to share the gospel with her. And so they did, and she became a Christian. And she came back to the UK. I met her at Newcastle University uh, back when we were students. And she honestly thought that there weren't any Christians in the UK. She said, well, I've never met them. And we started meeting each other. But then out of that, in the first couple of years of university, Julie led five people to Christ who all got baptized. And it wasn't that she saw herself as an evangelist. It's just that she saw the necessity of just being a Christian with people that she was alongside. And she led her best friend to Christ. She led her course mate friend to Christ. She led uh, two of her flatmates to Christ. And she led her mum to Christ. Now, who's God put you next to in this season ahead? God has put you next to someone. Maybe take a moment to think about that just now. In fact, let's just take a moment to respond.
Lord, would you help us to be those who are diligent with those you've placed alongside us. Please give us the courage and the energy to do this well. This is what I just felt God wanted me to do right now. In, in Nehemiah's day, there was just big piles of rubble. And there were stones that were just fire burned. If you've ever tried to burn rocks, they just disintegrate. And the enemy has said about Nehemiah's walls, well, it'll never get rebuilt because the rocks are just good for nothing. And this new community that God's building, it's called a, living, it's called a house full of living stones. I just felt there were people here today who felt like they weren't good for the task that God wanted them for. Do you just feel like you're fire damaged and that you feel like you don't belong? And I, I just feel that God wants to minister to you for a moment. You feel on the edge. You feel rejected or expended. And Jesus wants to recommission you and repurpose you today and assure you of his great love for you. And he doesn't reject you. And this builder Jesus, you know, his hands are soft. He's good with people like you. And I'm going to do something a little bit unusual. I'm going to, I'm going to sing you a song. And we were in a, a men's prayer meeting on the other Friday morning and Sandy Deans was leading it. And he said, hey, we're going to pray through Psalm 42 today. And Psalm 42 is a lament. And I thought, it's 6.30 in the morning, Sandy. I don't want to lament at, four, at 6.30 in the morning. But do you know what? God met with us. As we just started crying out to God about some of the stuff that's been hard. Some of the things we'd found difficult over the last couple of years. Some of us have never taken an opportunity to lament and say to God, this has been difficult. But as we did that, hope sprang up in our hearts. And the men's prayer meeting at the moment is an amazing place to be. Come on a 6.30 on a Friday morning. There's a women's one as well that you can also join, which is also amazing. But uh, hey, so anyway, I started to think about Psalm 42, and I just felt God gave me a melody and a, and a tune and, a, and some words. I'm not the best singer. I'm not the best songwriter. I'm not the best piano player. And my wife is looking at me terribly um, worried at this point. Um, but I'm just going to sing this over you, and uh, I just want you to take a moment to respond, to think about what's been taught today, and to let the Holy Spirit minister to you. So... Um, here we go. Holy Spirit, we just want to invite you to come to us right now. I long for you, oh Lord, for you I will trust in you alone I think of days gone by When I sang salvation songs Restore such joy to me, Lord Let me sing your song again 
So I sow downcast, oh my soul, put your hope in Him. Why so restless, soul, He's your peace within. I will praise you for your faithfulness. You're my Savior and my God. You're my Savior and my God. When I walk the lonely path, when I know the fiery trial, your deep calls out to deep. You pour your love all over me. And when our trials turn to gold, when we see you as you are, no pain, no tears, no sorrow, my Jesus making all things new. So I so downcast, oh my soul, put your hope in Him. Why so restless, soul, He's your peace within. I will praise you for your faithfulness. You're my Savior and my God. You're my Savior and my God. You're my Savior and my God. Lord, we just thank you today that you have come to fix what is broken. I thank you that you're bringing about your purposes in our lives for your glory. Thank you that you take what is dust and turn it into useful living stones for your glory.